Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. We're honored that you're joining us today. And regardless of whether you're listening live or to the archive of the show, I'm confident you'll be glad you joined us. If you're a new listener, I should let you know that we do not, uh, if you do not gain some knowledge, not us uh, necessarily, but if you do not gain some new knowledge during this hour, we have a double your money back guarantee. We'll refund double what it costs to listen. <laughs> If you've been listening to the world or national news or even the political commentaries lately, you might have the impression the world is heading into a major disaster. And the next stock, bond, real estate, and commodity market crashes are right around the corner. Well, I can assure you of one thing. All of the financial markets are not likely to crash at once. You see, even if some of the major tensions in the current hotspots around the world degrade into a major war, some markets will zig, others will zag. And if you're wondering which of the markets are likely to do well and which to avoid, you'll be glad you tuned in today. For that matter, you may learn so much that you're very likely to forward the link to all your friends and relatives um, and and, and maybe even some of your uh, um, just uh, pen pals uh, across the world, or at least the ones you like. And by the way, that is generally worth doing whenever you benefit from one of our shows. When's the last time you turned on the TV news, which I do uh, uh, very, very seldom. I avoid doing that. Or maybe the news on the radio. You open a newspaper or magazine, whether a printed one or online, and heard or read something that gave you some real optimism. Now, if you're drawing a blank or thinking back 10 or maybe 15 years ago, you're not alone. After all, those media outlets have learned that bad news is what sells and attracts viewers or listeners. We, as investors, are optimists by nature. If we weren't, we wouldn't be investing in stocks, bonds, real estate, nor commodities, since they all have some risk associated with them. We also know that not investing is riskier than investing. Since our expenses rise with inflation, we have no assurance our earnings will continue to rise to offset that inflation, especially if you're working for somebody else. And money buried in the backyard or in our mattress will not magically multiply to pay our future expenses. Now, I would even argue that the reason we invest is that we have to. And we don't want to count on income from the government to feed, house, and clothe us. And yet, if we hear enough bad news, that natural optimism fades we'll stop pursuing the very investment strategies that served us well. 
And as I thought through this dilemma and my own fading optimism as I hear more, I did what I often do. I reviewed some of my favorite quotes. The quote that helped change my perspective is one of Kemens Wilson's 20 Tips for Success. It's not how much you have, but how much you enjoy that makes happiness. Now, if you're not familiar with Kemens Wilson, he was the founder of the Holiday Inn chain of hotels, hotels, motels. Uh, It was his own lousy motel experience while on family vacations that sparked the idea for a chain of predictable quality hotels. And that's what Holiday Inn is about. Now, imagine that, finding an opportunity by looking at a problem differently than others have for decades. Now, most people complained about their hotel stays, but Kemens Wilson became wealthy by doing something about it. I occasionally, and I'll admit to this, focus too much on future investment gains and opportunities and don't take the time to appreciate what I already have. And it's this attitude of gratitude that helps me realize how lucky I already am. And even if the future isn't as bright as the past, with a little hard work and pursuing new opportunities, I'll continue to be lucky. It also reminds me of the most important lessons I learned as an executive at PepsiCo. We were cautioned to never bring up or discuss problems. They were always to be couched as opportunities. So, indeed, behind every one of those bad news stories is an opportunity. Let me share just one simple one. The U.S. is being inundated with illegals entering through unguarded borders with Mexico. And I won't talk about the political nor the humanitarian aspect, because that's what most people focus on, is governmental incompetence or the humanitarian need to help those refugees. I see it as an opportunity for housing providers. We also call them real estate investors. Since for the foreseeable future, the government will be paying someone to house and feed these immigrants. And I have a suspicion that some additional opportunities will come up in today's show. Today we're focusing on an embarrassment of riches. Now before I explain why we chose that title, I welcome you to use the chat window below the radio player and share your first reaction when you hear the title, An Embarrassment of Riches. I certainly made an initial assumption but was intrigued enough I wanted to find out more and invite our guest to discuss it. Now, before I tell you more, I'll give you some time to share your views on what that title evokes in your mind. So just go ahead and use the chat window below the radio player. Send in your comments. Today is August 25th, 2014. It's 9.05 a.m. in Arizona, 12.05 p.m. on the East Coast, where our guest is at 18.05 in continental Europe. It's the only day ever like it. We'll do everything possible to make it a great one. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. And I certainly hope you can join us each time we air. But if you happen to miss some shows, which isn't recommended, but it happens, you can re-listen to them. You can find them on the archive. Just go to www.wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. And that show will be having a fa- that show uh, website will be having a major facelift in the next few weeks or months at worst. The advantage of joining us live for the show is to get questions answered or to make comments like the one I just asked you about, either using the chat window below the radio player calling in, and the call-in number is at the top of the screen, and I'll share that again later on. 
If you're listening to the archive, neither of those options will work. You can trust me on that one. On the other hand, if you listen to the archive of the show, especially 10 or 20 years from now, you'll have some history to see how our guest views worked out. The U.S. equity markets, by the way, after reaching another record high last week, are off to a positive and likely another record high. Asia was mixed overnight. Europe was just ended, just ended uh, up strongly, and Brazil is up as well. A lot of optimism. Will the equity markets continue to reach new highs and keep ignoring all the bad news in the world? Will the U- U.S. bond market and U.S. dollar continue to strengthen as more bad news is announced? Well, those are just among the uh, many questions I have for our special guest today, Alexander Green. See, he's the chief investment strategist at the Oxford Club and Investment U. By the way, I highly recommend the articles he publishes on Investment U. You can find that right on the uh, web. Just look up Investment U. Alexander Green is also the editor of a number of newsletters, including the Momentum Alert, the Insider Alert, and True Value Alert. Obviously, niches and specialties, which we'll talk more about. Now, Halpert Financial Digest ranked his Oxford communique on its honor roll of top-performing investment letters in the nation for the last 13 years. That's a long time. Now, I'd like to just review the chat window below. Not seeing the answer I was expecting, nor the correct answer to why we chose this title, let me go ahead and tell you. The title, An Embarrassment of Riches, is the title of Alexander Green's newest book. You see, in addition to the other things he does, and he's got a busy schedule, he's also written four national bestsellers on investing. The newest is An Embarrassment of Riches. So let's give Alexander Green a warm radio welcome. Alexander, very, very glad you're joining us today. Well, Ron, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, I gave a brief overview of your background, touching on a number of aspects. How do you introduce yourself at a cocktail party? <laughs> oh, it's Steve McQueen, generally. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, um, I, I, when you say that, I, I, I presume you mean how do I talk about what I do? Yeah, I mean, you know, just yeah. you meet some new people. What do you, what do you tell them? Yeah, well, I, I tell them uh, I'm generally pretty vague unless they want specifics, but I tell them I write mm-hmm. investment advice for a living and uh, okay. Uh, my background is I've I've spent uh, 16 years as a, a research analyst and a portfolio manager, and then mm-hmm. uh, spent the last uh, 14 and a half years as a full-time financial writer. Hmm. Okay, that's uh, it is actually a pretty good summary to to capture all of those things. As a matter of fact, when you mention the Steve McQueen, very often when I'm doing a uh, introduction, I always hate when people say, "Well, if people don't don't know me. I'm well, I I do that. I say, if people don't know me, I'm Bill Gates." Of course, gets a little bit of a chuckle. And, they might uh, hit you for a loan. You better be careful. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. That's okay. Well, we'll, we'll talk about anything. You know, it, if it can make money, why not? Now, what inspired you to pursue a career in investments? Well, I think like most people, I, I've always been fascinated by money. Uh, even when I knew very little about stocks and bonds, uh, I, I was a business major at uh, Furman University where I did my undergraduate okay. work, business and psychology, which as it turned out was perfect for the stock market because it's half sure. business fundamentals and half human psychology. Um, but the, the fascinating thing about money is I think everybody knows who, who really thinks seriously about getting rich is you, you can't get rich by working. You, your money has to work as hard as you do. But then how do you put right. it to work? Do you put it in real estate? Do you put it in stocks? Do you put it in bonds? Do you put it in precious metals or currencies or commodities? So many choices out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what's the, what's the best way? What's the most practical way? What's the, the least risky way 
to achieve and maintain financial independence? That that question has always been fascinating to me, and so I find the financial markets supremely interesting. I've, my wife, for instance, has been watching a, a daytime soap opera for decades, and, and all characters come and they go, and you know, all kinds of bizarre events occur. And I've often said that the, the financial markets are the same way. You've got interest rates. You've got political events. You've got uh, economic growth. You've got changes in legislation. You've got currency fluctuations and commodity price changes and all, all sorts of, of uh, influences every day. And I think it's sort of the ultimate Rubik's Cube to look at what's happening in the world and how it's influencing the markets and how you can use what's happening to achieve the kind of wealth you need to to live independent of of a job or being dependent on someone else or the government. So so that's what's always been of interest to me. Yeah, and I, I think you you said it extremely well. And like you also term use the term uh, having uh, your money work for you. What's your favorite money a way to uh, make money? Is it working? Is it uh, having that money work for you? What's your your favorite way? Well, I enjoy my work a great deal, and I'm, I'm paid reasonably well for it. But, but I think it's the the thing that really achieves financial independence for you is taking the money that you've saved and putting it to work, not in a passbook savings account or a money market mm-hmm. or, or some low risk treasury bill or something, but but putting it to work in a way that's that's both likely to lead to success and also doesn't have mm-hmm. a great deal of risk. Because, uh, you know, I always say that. You know, if you're an investor, you've already done the hard part. I mean, first of all, you have to make the money, which is not easy right. in a competitive world where everybody's trying to eat your lunch. And then you have to pay taxes on the money, which in some states, you know, if you look at state, federal, and sure. local taxes, you could be half of your income or more. Then you have to save the money instead of spending it. And with all those things vying for your dollars, it's a tough thing to do in today's world, too. So you've made it. you pay paid taxes on it. you saved it. Now it should be the easy part, which is just managing it sensibly, to pay for your retirement or to enjoy the kind of standard of living that you'd want to enjoy. So uh, to me, the, the, what's, what attracts me the most or what I'm looking to do is, is achieve that financial independence with the lowest risk possible because I always, I always call myself a chicken-hearted investor. I'm interested in achieving and maintaining a, a high standard of living, but I want to do it with as little risk as possible. So I'm always – in fact, you, you mentioned the, the Holbert Financial Digest in your opening mm-hmm. – uh, which is, has indeed ranked us among the top investment letters in the country for the last 13 consecutive years. But he always points out that we've done it with an exceedingly low level of risk. And that's what I'm the proudest about, because it's not because we're speculating in options or betting on gold mm-hmm. coins or doing something crazy. We're doing very low-risk strategies and being successful at it. I think you have all of our listeners' attention at the moment in terms of good returns and low risk, the uh, you know holy grail out there. But before we dig into specifics, would you share with our listeners how they learn more about you, your books, your newsletters? What's the easiest way? Uh, you can visit uh, our website, investmentu.com. That's investment and this mm-hmm. the letter u.com uh, or oxfordclub.com. And then my okay. my four books are available in most bookstores or on Amazon.com. Just if you if you typed in Alexander Green in the search engine, you'd do that. All my books would come up. Okay. And before we close today, I will be mentioning each of them just so that they have the titles, and a couple of them are pretty intriguing. As is your your most recent one. Now, when I first heard this title, here's a confession. I think of this most recent book, An Embarrassment of Riches. My first thought is some socialist writing about how successful people and investors should spread their wealth, since. Other listeners may have that same reaction, and they haven't admitted it to uh, admitted it yet. Why don't you share with us why you came out with that title and uh, what the book is really about? 
Well, I, I should I probably begin by conceding that I didn't actually coin the, the phrase an embarrassment of riches. It's sort of a literary okay. term, and it's meant to it's meant to convey the idea that you're spoiled for choice. And it, as mm-hmm. far as this book goes, uh, I, I meant the book as an antidote to all the pessimism that exists in the media and in the culture at large today. Um, because there's so much right in our lives, but because it takes a, a larger perspective and because it's not newsworthy day after day, people seem to not recognize it. They don't seem to recognize that, that human lifespans have never been longer, standards of living have never been higher, um, violence in the world has never been lower. That's a surprise to people mm-hmm. who, uh, who watch the, the cable news networks. Sure. Um, but, if, but if you read uh, Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker's new book, uh, the better angels of our nature. He he shows that historically, war uh, and violence around the world have never been lower than they are today. A violent crime in the United States is in a long-term cycle of decline. Um, with the exception of greenhouse gases, all forms of pollution are in decline. Uh, U.S. household net worth uh, at more than 81 trillion has never mm-hmm. been greater. So there are there are lots of positives in the world today. I'm not saying that you shouldn't acknowledge the negatives as well. And, of course, you can see them on full display in the media every day. That's you know, <laughs> The unofficial motto of the national media is if it, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. And so uh, all, all the tragedies and accidents and corruption and, um, and war and so forth make the headlines. But, but most people are living peaceful lives, uh, affluent lives, certainly affluent uh, by the standards of generations before, um, and uh, and so I, I wrote the book, An Embarrassment of Riches, to point out all the different ways in which life has never been better for most Americans and for most people around the world today. And in some ways, uh, although obviously that optimism and, and understanding that the, the media can get in the way of, of uh, reality, uh, you're pointing out a lot of those positives. Those are important for investors. But on the other hand, it seems like you're capturing other parts of life beyond just the investing side. Am I correct? Absolutely. I mean, I can give you lots of reasons to be optimistic about the financial markets and about mm-hmm. investing today, but but the real beautiful thing is that you know, for instance, at the turn of the last century, the average person lived to the ripe old age of 42. Now, part right. of that's because the infant mortality was so high, but then again, m- many people lost a child before the age of five. Uh, I mean, if, if you if you use a bit of perspective, you know, the 99% of human history was pre-agricultural, and people hunted and scavenged to survive. And, then agriculture came along, and they performed backbreaking work from morning to night just to feed themselves. Most people lived at the present-day level of Bangladesh. And then after the Industrial Revolution, things got a little better, but still people worked you know, long, hard hours doing hard physical labor, whereas today most people are providing services and, and uh, using education. We're a knowledge-based society. So it's, it's so many ways things are better. Your, your great-great-grandparents would look at your life today as the realization of some utopia, you know, with mm-hmm. you, you look in a house and there's microwaves and dishwashers and coffee makers and lounge chairs that give massages and so on. Uh, anything you want, you put a click of a mouse, you can buy it on the internet and so forth. There's just it's they they couldn't even imagine you know cell phones and and uh, flat panel TVs and and uh, the quality of automobiles and communications and same day travel to distant cities around the world at a reasonable cost. You know, growing up myself, I never even took a commercial flight until after I graduated college. Rich people travel, mm-hmm. not, not mm-hmm. ordinary people. I, I'd never taken a commercial flight. Right. So um, 
and I just, you know, not, not because I was poor, I was middle class. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, life today is, is better in so many ways that unless you take a moment to stop and sort of catalog right. all the advantages you have and the, the great benefits of living in a free market, capitalistic, democratic society, um, you can easily miss the, the, the forest with the trees. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously one of the takeaways from the book is that we need to step back and appreciate what we already have because we, we take that for granted and we keep looking at what we don't have. But as you started to write this book, I, I assume you had a vision of what uh, readers should take away, and that was probably one of the takeaways. What are some of the other takeaways uh, that uh, you hope readers are getting as they read the book? Well, one of the things is, you mentioned that there's a socialistic perspective. I have to come from the opposite camp. I'm sort of a libertarian, and I'm okay. a great freedom advocate, and I, and, I, and I firmly believe that in order to have freedom, there has to be a strong sense of responsibility. And so right. one of the takeaways, I hope, is that if, if, you, if you want your life to change, the person who's going to make that happen is not – your parents or your boss or even your spouse or your, or your children, certainly not the government, it's yourself. And there are things that you can do, um, choices you can make to, uh, to better your health, to increase your savings, to become a more successful investor, to appreciate what you have. Uh, I mean, most of the happiness I can tell you, because I've, I've been rich and I've been poor, and as, as most people have been there said, that rich is better – but, uh, but I can tell you, that in, in many ways, I look back to when I was dirt poor uh, as a young man, and it was many of the, the, the best days of my life. Sure. I, mean, I shared a house with other people because I couldn't afford to live on my own. I drove a, a beater car that the stereo was worth more than the, the vehicle, and, and I, I couldn't go out. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any savings. I didn't have any health insurance. I didn't have any retirement plans. And, uh, and of course, in, in many ways, that's just being young for most people. But uh, it's the choices that you make that can change all of that for the better if you have a bit of optimism and a, a work ethic and a, a little stick-to-itiveness. Oh, absolutely. Right right on on, on that. And uh, as, as you described them, those sound like the good old days. Uh, there's, there's no doubt that sometimes those, uh, those times when you're scraping by and uh, still enjoying it, you start to realize how much we should be enjoying what we already have. But let me remind sure. our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp., a real estate fund in the Phoenix, Scottsdale area. If you missed some of the prior shows or if you want to re-listen to them, let's try that again. We maintain an archive of shows on wealthdna.us. If you didn't get an email reminder of the shows, just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events, and I can assure you we have plenty more good ones coming up. Now, a reminder, during the show, we welcome you, our listeners, to ask questions. The easiest is to start a chat in the area below the radio player, or you can call in 917-388-4162, and you'll find that number at the top of the screen. Our topic today is an embarrassment of riches. Our guest is Alexander Green. He's the author and also a chief investment strategist and editor of several investment newsletters. Alexander, reading some of your articles and even the key messages of the book, it seems like you were pretty heavily influenced by Sir John Templeton. Am I correct? Yes, very much so. You're uh, one, of, one of your investment heroes, I assume. Yes. Well, for, for those listeners who don't know who John Templeton is, mm-hmm. he's, he's one of the great pioneers of uh, the, the discipline of global investing. He, he believed mm-hmm. that 
you know, the financial sun didn't rise on New York and set on L.A. He looked the whole world <laughs> over for investment opportunities. And, uh, and so he founded a group of funds called the Templeton Fund, still around today. They merged with, with sure. Franklin, Franklin and now the Franklin Templeton Fund. But uh, John Templeton was a great value investor. He, he believed that you should make an independent evaluation of what a company is worth, check the market price to see if it's selling for less than that value, and only if you had an undervalued situation with a high margin of safety would you invest. But, you, but that might be in Japan, it might be in South Korea, it might be in Brazil. He would invest anywhere that he saw opportunities, and he did it very successfully, beating the markets by a wide margin, not just for years but for decades. Um, and he also influenced me, as you've read the book, you know that, that he, he coined the, mm -hmm. the phrase spiritual wealth and that he, yes. he was all for doing everything he can to increase your material wealth in life, but spiritual wealth, which is the things that you, you can't put a, a price tag on. I'm talking about your health, your family, your friends, mm -hmm. your, your, uh, your interests, your hobbies, you know, watch, watching the sunset over the mountains or the, the waves rolling on the beach, all, all those things that are priceless, he calls spiritual wealth. And so... Uh, John Templeton had a, an enormous influence on me. I'm sorry I never got to meet the man, but right. I used to I read everything he wrote, listen to his, his speeches, and uh, adopted much of his investment discipline incorporated into what I was doing. And so he's, he's had a tremendous influence on what I do as an investment advisor. Now, I don't know if you remember, but somewhere around the time he was 90 years old, around the turn of the century, he was on, uh, and I'm talking about Sir John Templeton here, he was a guest on Lou Rukeyser's Wall Street Week. His prediction for the Dow Jones Industrial Average at the end of the century was $1 million. Now, we're 14 years later, so you have a big advantage here. Uh, after two of the do deepest market declines we've seen, do you agree with his projection? <laughs> Well, I'd have to compound 17,000 to see what, what, what kind of annual return it would take to get to 1 million. But uh, he, he was a great optimist. I, I don't know how many people listening to the show will actually be around at the turn of the next century unless something exciting happens in the field of cryogenics. I don't think most of us are going to get to see that. But, uh, right, right. but, but I, I always remember John Templeton saying that stocks will surprise you at how well they would do. He would, he would talk about there being a shortage of shares. Now, that, that, that phrase in itself seems kind of crazy because there's thousands mm -hmm. of publicly traded companies and they do secondary offerings and increase the, the number of shares outstanding. But the truth of the matter is there are only so many really wonderful companies in the world and there are billions of people looking for money to invest. So, and so to a certain extent, even though there are new companies coming along and, and existing companies that are growing in value, um, part of the reason why the stock market does so well is there's a limited number of great companies to invest in. And Templeton recognized this decades ago and, and rode the trend uh, for many, many years. Yeah, as a matter of fact, one of your uh, newsletters uh, focuses on this whole idea of buybacks, so the number of shares does actually decrease it from time to time as well, uh, even yes. though there are new shares being issued, some companies are buying them back, and, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Now, I have a okay. slight advantage over some of our listeners. Since I'm familiar with the, the book and I've uh, had a chance to read a number of your recent articles, I, I'd like to play devil's advocate to kind of, you know, take you have this optimism, enthusiasm for the market and uh, uh, great growth, so I'm going to try to challenge you on that if you're okay with okay. that. Sure. Right. And let me start with the ace up my sleeve. I've had it hiding here. Inept <laughs> government. You see, but not just in the U.S., but around the world, a number of countries, they will destroy the world as we know it. Mm -hmm. What's your uh, well, I, I tell you, I've, I've written about this. Uh, first of all, I'm a political junkie, so no one has to tell me how inept a government is. It's a, it's a, it's a shame when you, when you look at all these 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 companies 
doing all these wonderful things, innovating, making billions of dollars, uh, and then you look at the fact that the post office loses $2 billion a year, and Amtrak loses $80 million a year on its food service alone. Uh, the, the ineptitude in government is, is uh, really something to behold. And so I'm, I'm well aware of the political dysfunction, first of all, the polarization of the politics in Washington, right. the size of the, of the budget deficit, which is uh, really not only enormous but uh, irresponsible, uh, and an even greater threat, which is the huge unfunded liabilities for uh, entitlements like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the Prescription D drug benefit. So, so I'm aware of all those things. But here's the thing. If, if you were to invest based on the fact that you were excited about what was happening in Washington, let's face it, you would never put a dime at risk. But, but here's the thing you have to ask yourself. If you, let's just say that you had a, an idea to, to start a company, uh, or you, were, you had a small company that was making let's just say, collapsible fishing poles that could fold up and fit into your pocket or something like that. If there was a huge demand for your product and you knew that, uh, that you, the customers wanted it and you couldn't make enough to keep them in stock and they were selling like hotcakes, would you, would you not expand your business or invest further in your business because the budget deficit is what it is or because Joe Biden said this or Harry Reid said that? I mean, it's really it's, – it's, I know that what's happening in Washington is, is unpleasant. People are pessimistic in many ways, and I, I fully understand them. But, but investing is not about I'm excited about what Congress is doing and I love Barack Obama. Investing is about are there companies out there that are innovating, creating great products and services, making a lot of money that and protected by patents and copyrights and trademarks, and, and there's good reason to believe that their profits – next quarter, next year, and the year after that are likely to be higher? If so, you have to set aside what's happening in Washington and invest in those companies that offer you the prospect of earning a high return on your money. So that's, that's what we take. We don't, we don't say, oh, don't worry about Washington, everything's fine. Things aren't fine in Washington. But, we're, but first of all, we're not facing, as some pundits would have you believe, imminent national collapse because of the mm-hmm. deficit. For, for instance, you know, the, the federal deficit is um, – a little over $17 trillion, and so is right. the size of the U.S. economy. So essentially the, the debt is equal to the GDP. Now, that's not mm-hmm. a good thing, but when, when George, Bush, George W. Bush came into office, it was less than half of GDP, so it's, it's grown right. enormously. However, it is, after years of trillion-dollar-plus deficits, it is coming down. This year it's going to be roughly $400 billion, and that's too much, but still, it's the deficit. The annual deficit is getting better, not worse. Uh, and there, if they uh, reform entitlements, which I believe they will down the road, it will take a, a bipartisan commission and, and a, of course, an election first of all to sort of set things, you know, set things on a certain path. But uh, there'll be a bipartisan commission that will reform entitlements. I think the budget deficit is going to come under control. The the economy is going to continue to grow, so will the tax base, so will the revenue of a larger economy help to, to pare down the deficit. So there are reasons for optimism, even though you don't have to like what's happening in Washington today. Okay, so view it as comic relief, if nothing else. <laughs> right, exactly. uh, now, here's, a, here's another one to, to, to dampen your optimism. Oops, and I just hear my uh, air conditioning kicking on. That shouldn't be doing that during the show. I forgot to shut that off. Anyway, racial tensions in the middle America. We've got illegals flooding through unguarded borders. We've got wars in Ukraine throughout the Middle East, poverty, disease, death. How can the markets keep going up despite that? 
Well, I think we'll have death for a long time. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do about that. But, uh, right, the Ebola crisis in Africa and uh, mm-hmm. the violence in the Middle East and Russia on the border of Ukraine and illegal immigrants coming in. But I, I come back again to, let's, let's just take, for instance, the violence. Uh, what, what's happening in Gaza? What's happening in Syria and Iraq and mm-hmm. Ukraine? If you ask yourself, okay, uh, the companies that I invest in, how much business are they doing in Gaza? How much are they doing in Syria? How much are they doing in Ukraine? It's, right. it's probably very, very small. And so when people say, sure. I don't understand how we can have all these problems and the stock market is hitting new highs, it's because investors are making a sensible uh, decision that the situation as it stands now isn't likely to impact earnings terribly negatively for most of the companies that trade in the United States. Now, that could change if what happens, what's happening in Gaza or what's happening in Iraq spirals into a regional war in the, in the mm-hmm. Middle East and oil prices spike and, and Iran tries to close the, you know, the, uh, the Persian Gulf. But for, these are all, when you get into these hypotheticals of what could happen, uh, what, what if someone blew up a dirty bomb in New York City tomorrow? I mean, you, right. you, you would never, you know, if, if you have to wait for all the streetlights to turn green, you'll never get out of your driveway. There's always <laughs> going to be these negative things happening around the world. And so, so to, to take seriously a serious problem, is the Ebola crisis as it stands now likely to impact? I mean, I hate to, this sounds like a very cold-hearted, calculated no. equation, but, but I'm trying to explain how business works. So far, the Ebola uh, crisis has been contained. It's not likely to affect corporate earnings. So far, Russia has not invaded Ukraine. It's not likely to affect corporate earnings. ISIS running around Iraq and Syria is not likely to affect corporate earnings. So when people say, how can you have these terrible things and the stock market goes on, because you need a reason to think that the economy is going to tank uh, or corporate earnings are going to decline for the stock market to sell off. So I think investors are making the rational decision that despite these negatives around the world, it's not likely to negatively impact near-term corporate earnings in any sort of significant way. Okay. Now, the uh, equity bull market's been going for five and a half years, almost exactly now. Uh, Can that continue? That's a long bull market. It can continue because everyone hears all the negatives. The economy has been the slowest uh, post-recession recovery since the Second World War, and uh, the dollar is weak, and unemployment is high, and banks aren't lending, and companies aren't hiring, and and you know on and on and on. But people often overlook all the positives. And I, when I speak at investment conferences, I, it's not unusual someone to go like, positives? What positives? <laughs> and, I, and so I have to remind them <laughs> that there are a lot of good things happening. First of all, uh, inflation is, is MIA. And, and believe me, inflation is the great enemy of both stock and bond mm-hmm. investors. So low inflation is a big plus. Obviously, the Fed could hardly be more accommodative with uh, zero short-term interest rates and then quantitative easing on the longer end, which is stimulating the economy. That's been, a, that's been like rocket fuel for the stock market and continues mm-hmm. to this day. I mean, we know that the, that the quantitative easing will end at some point in the future, but uh, that only means that the patient's healthy enough to walk without crutches, so that's a good thing. Um, the real estate market's bouncing back after going through mm-hmm. essentially its own private depression, especially home builders, but uh, sure. real estate, uh, residential real estate's gone through a very tough time and is bouncing back. The economy, which has struggled, actually did grow at 4% in the second quarter, so economic growth is getting stronger. Um, we have a, an energy renaissance going on in the United States. Thanks to new technologies like horizontal drilling and fracking, we have these new energy markets. You know, it's funny, it, it seems mm-hmm. like just yesterday that, that all the, the uh, the chicken littles were telling us that we had to end our addiction, our addiction to foreign oil. Well, 
Last year, we became, we surpassed Russia as the world's largest energy producer, and we now are faced with a huge new export market for liquefied natural gas, which is going to bring mm-hmm. in billions. Uh, and so it's completely flipped from worrying about our addiction to be, we're going to become a net energy exporter uh, in a matter of a few years. Uh, so that's very positive. Uh, and then I, I tell people that uh, in addition to all the revolution that's going on in medicine and technology and communications and transportation and so forth, you can't lose sight of the fact that for the last, well, actually since the second quarter of, of 2009, uh, corporate profits haven't just been good. They haven't just been better than expected. Mm-hmm, They've been mm-hmm. all-time record corporate Records. profits. So we're, right now we're in a period of record corporate profits, record corporate profit margins, record corporate profits as a percentage of GDP. So when people say, I don't understand why the stock market is going up with all this bad news, the economy is getting stronger, unemployment is coming down, the, the Fed is massive accommodative, we've got an energy renaissance going on in this country, record corporate profits, record corporate profit margins, and so on. So there's, there's plenty of good news. I mean, this is not moving on. Sometimes people seem to think it's the market's moving on, on Fed easing alone. That's simply not the case. It's helped, absolutely, but there are good reasons that the stock market is where it is today and good reasons it can go higher still. Okay, you mentioned the Fed, and by the way, since you're you're winning here, you're doing much better on the optimism than I'm trying to dampen you. Uh, I've got to reach in to uh, grab another ace. Uh, the Fed indeed has been uh, viewed as one of the major factors. Where the, the stock market is up, by the way, for people who haven't been watching since the bottom 195 percent, and I'm looking at the S&P 500 specifically as kind of a broader market. Uh, and, and a lot of that's probably due to the Fed's QE, uh, quantitative easing, as, as you talked about. Uh, that will eventually stop. So could this whole thing uh, stop? And secondly, interest rates are low because of that, and therefore people are putting money in the, in the stock market. So as soon as the Fed winds down, things will get worse. What do you think? Well, I, I don't think things are necessarily going to get worse. In fact, I don't think they're going to get worse at all because Yellen has said, as Bernanke was saying before her, mm-hmm. that everything the Fed does is going to be data dependent. And there's, the Fed is saying right now that uh, they're, they're going to keep, stay uh, with zero short-term rate policy, and they're, they're sort of unwinding their, their, their bond-buying program, so that's actually lessening mm-hmm. a little bit every month. But that's a good thing because when the Fed is, is easing up on the accommodation, what they're saying is the economy is strong enough that we don't have to give this artificial support to the economy. So we want it's, – it's funny. I've talked to people that they're, they're angry about what the Fed is doing. And I guess if you're a passbook mm-hmm. saver, the fact that you're earning next to right. nothing on your right. passbook right. savings uh, is a shame. Uh, however, what, what it's done for the economy has been a positive thing, not just for the financial markets. The financial markets are reacting to the fact that what's happening is better for the economy. And I really can't wait until the Fed normalizes interest rates till we actually have something on the short end that you can earn and no more accommodative uh, buying on the long end because simply it isn't necessary. That will mean that the stock market is – excuse me, the economy is healthy enough that it doesn't need Fed intervention, and that would be a positive for – for corporate profits and for the stock market. All right, I'm not doing well challenging here. So let me throw in Warren Buffett, uh, also known as the Oracle of Omaha. He's accumulated about $50 billion in cash. Is that an indication that it's time to take some profits? Uh, no, not necessarily. I've, I've written about this. I, I do think it's, it's interesting that he has $50 billion in cash. And, uh, uh, of course, he has hundreds of billions of dollars invested in equities that are not in cash. So you don't, you don't mm-hmm. take that as, you know, Buffett's gone to cash. But right. I'm sure what Buffett is doing is he's, he's building up a, a, a war chest 
so that he can buy things cheaply if there's a break in the market. I, I happen to feel, especially since Warren Buffett went out on a limb in October of 2008 and said, buy American I am in his famous op-ed piece in the New York Times right. and, and was sort of pounding the table that this was actually a, a buying opportunity. He, he chuckled mm-hmm. later and said that he wished he'd written that in March of 2009, <laughs> October, because he was a bit early. But I think he looks back now and, and realizes that, that everything was on sale during that financial crisis, and he could have put more money to work, and he didn't. So even I think right. Buffett must have been a little bit shell shocked when when the Dow hit 6,500. But um, but he's building cash because uh, while it obviously pays nothing for Buffett, the same as it does for the rest of us, um, he's thinking that uh, there will be better opportunities down the road somewhere. We don't know when that will be and where it will be, but he's he's got the biggest cash hoard he's had in part because Berkshire Hathaway's uh, share price has never been greater, so he's, he's mm-hmm. more capital than ever. But he hasn't gone to cash. He Again, he has hundreds of billions of dollars fully invested in private companies and publicly traded companies, and he remains resolutely bullish on the outlook for the economy and the stock market. Okay, so there's there's a risk of re- reading just 140 characters in Twitter of, of he's accumulating cash uh, that somebody doesn't read the whole story. Uh, they can fall behind and, and, and do some of the wrong things. True. Uh, so well said. Let me start asking your view on various markets then, because you're overall enthusiastic, obviously, and optimistic, uh, which uh, I, I you know really need every once in a while, and today's a great day for that. Uh, what's your view of residential real estate? You touched on it a little bit. It is recovering. Will that continue? I mean, we're, we're obviously still far from from um, you know former highs on the on the market uh, on housing market, but you know what do you, what do you see in the residential uh, real estate market? Uh, I think the residential real estate market is going to continue to get better. I think it will still be quite a while before we see the sort of nosebleed prices we saw back in 2005 when things were really sort of zany in the whole residential sector. I don't think that housing generally is a great investment because when you actually get around to subtracting uh, mortgage interest and home repairs and insurance and uh, all the costs of home ownership. Uh, usually, the reason people make money in real estate is because they're they're leveraged a great deal. Right. They put ten percent down and leverage ninety percent of the purchase. And if you'd bought stocks your whole life with ten percent, which you you could do before the Great Depression, <laughs> if you were ninety percent right. uh, right. uh, borrowed, you would have made a, a bloody fortune in your stock portfolio. But um, but so I, I, I'm moderate, moderately positive on the, the residential real estate market. I'm actually very bullish on the home builders because I think there's a huge amount okay. of pent-up demand. People who, who wanted to buy a bigger house but, but didn't feel confident about the future or didn't feel like, they, uh, like the market was going to go up, they were going to keep going down. So I, I've, I feel like some of the home builders like Lennar and D.R. Horton and Toll Brothers and others are actually very attractive at current levels. Um, so I'm, I'm a buyer of home of the home builders, but but I, I'm not a big real estate investor myself, and I don't think that uh, real estate is the best way to get rich. Certainly from my own experience, I mean, I've, the stock market has been a very good way to get rich. And here's the beautiful thing about the stock market: you want to buy a stock, you click a mouse, five dollars through E Trade or TD Waterhouse mm-hmm. or whatever, and you're in. And you want to sell it, and you click the mouse, and it's five more dollars, and you're out. Compare that to your typical real estate closing. <laughs> what you have to go through, the fees you have to pay, and and uh, the huge 
spread between what you're you're paying for a house and what you're getting for it, and the seller netting it out after commissions and so on. So, so uh, as Warren Buffett, who you just mentioned, uh, often mm-hmm. says that why should I invest in real estate when the stock market is so easy and so liquid and so uh, cheap to invest in compared to real estate? Okay. We should uh, tell our listeners who just tuned in where you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. If you missed the earlier part of the show, you can re-listen to the earlier portion on our archive. That archive is on wealthdna.us. Obviously, prior shows you'll find there as well. Today, our guest is Alexander Green. Our topic is An Embarrassment of Riches, the title of his newest bestseller, He's also the chief investment strategist of the Oxford Club and Investment U, as well as editor of several leading investment newsletters. All right, Alexander, while we're on it, let me, let me go into the commercial real estate market, which uh, tends to lag. And when we look at all of the changes going on in the retail sector and uh, people not working in offices as much and those, you know, uh, the telecommuting, what do you see for commercial real estate? Uh, with the economy getting better, that's obviously good for commercial real estate. Most people don't have the, the kind of money it takes to buy apartment buildings and warehouses and shopping centers and industrial parks. Sure. And that's why the be- another beautiful thing about the stock market is you can invest in real estate investment trusts, which is just a very mm-hmm. liquid way of investing in commercial real estate. Um, these are These trade like a stock. Uh, it's called a real estate investment trust because, one, it holds commercial real estate properties, like I said, shopping centers or industrial right. parks or warehouses or apartment buildings. And then by law, they're able to avoid the corporate income tax by passing through to shareholders 90% of their net income every year. So they tend to have nice yields to them as well. So they're a great portfolio diversifier because commercial real estate doesn't move in lockstep with uh, publicly traded equities. Um, and they give you a nice yield. And if you're a little bit optimistic about the economy, as I am, that's good for commercial real estate and so good for real estate investment trusts. Okay. Let me also uh, get your view on something that I know you've uh, been out, or you, you started becoming optimistic on a little while ago, which is gold and silver mining companies. What are your view today? Because they continue to do, uh, they kind of lag the market and not do very well. Yeah, no, this is sort of a contrarian play, and I don't suggest that anyone invest in gold or silver for a short-term speculation, in part because, let me begin by saying that gold, to me, is the great question mark when it comes to uh, assets that you can invest in, and and the reason for it is, is straightforward. When you think about it, gold is beautiful to behold, but... Uh, it doesn't accrue any interest. It doesn't mm-hmm. generate any earnings. It doesn't pay any dividends. It doesn't provide any rental income. And so it's difficult to provide the typical valuation metrics to gold that you do for stocks and bonds and real estate. You can't look at the price-to-earnings ratio or the yield right. to maturity or, or the book value or whatever because there isn't any. Uh, and there are very few commercial uses for gold. So gold is worth exactly what someone's willing to pay for it and what will someone be willing to pay for it six months or six years from now. Your guess is as good as mine. So I have no idea what gold is going to do in the short term, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I also feel like nobody else really knows either, although there's certainly a lot of opinions out there. But I do know that gold mining stocks have performed very well over time, in part because they can do things like increase production or cut cost or make acquisitions, things that you can't have happen with the metal. Uh, and so, and also it's a sort of a leverage play on the price of gold and that if you see gold prices move up 10%, gold shares will often move up 25 or 30%. And uh, so I think gold shares are a great portfolio diversifier. 
they've been in the tank now since gold peaked about three years ago. Three years ago. And mm-hmm. yeah, so so as a, as a sort of a longer term hold, gold or silver shares as a way to. When I say long term, I'm talking five years or longer. When you when you buy things cheap. You don't have to say because X is going to happen. You're just buying it cheap, and you're waiting until a more reasonable valuation returns, and then you should have a nice profit. So, so I think from that standpoint, gold and silver mining companies are attractive at today's levels. Okay, let me let me go down a path that's that's a little bit similar, uh, one that's been down uh, dramatically, and this happens to be since uh, the uh, uh, Japanese uh, tsunami uh, took out the the uh, nuclear plant there. But nuclear energy and uranium, I'm, I'm seeing a mix, and obviously you can invest in in that sector just like any other. Uh, but I'm seeing a mix of things: Germany uh, shutting down all their plants, uh, France is uh, uh, increasing, uh, China is increasing. What do you see for nuclear energy and uranium? You know, I'm not recommending any uranium stocks or nuclear power plays at the moment. I, I'm afraid that what happened in Japan a few years ago has really put a, a cloud over the industry. That It seemed for a while, that, especially because there's a new, more technologically advanced uh, nuclear plants that are coming along that were safer. But, but more and more countries are, are not only saying we're not, uh, we're not going to have new nuclear plants, they're, they're trying to mothball their existing ones. So um, mm-hmm. that could change. That You talk about something that's very much dependent on politics. Um, I, I, I really don't see uh, a catalyst for uh, an increase in, in nuclear power plants and therefore uranium in the, in the near term. And so I, it just, as it so happens, I'm not recommending anything in that sector right now. Okay. One of, the, one of the reasons I want to bring up another commodity sector, kind of an oddball as opposed to the agriculture, is what percentage of a portfolio uh, should investor have in commodities? Because as you said, they don't bring an interest rate. They're really more uh, strategic plays or, or uh, political plays in some cases, uh, or, or like oil we talked a little bit about. What percentage of a portfolio would you say uh, somebody should have? Well, this might surprise you in, in some ways, but as far as how much you should have in fiscal commodities, investing in commodity mm-hmm. futures or so on, it's right. zero. Right. Uh, okay. and, and part of the reason for that is if you look at the long-term returns on commodities, they actually have come down lower and lower and lower, whether you're looking at agricultural commodities or iron ore or cotton or wheat or whatever. But they, they, they'll have a run-up and they'll, have, they'll crash and burn and they'll run up again. But, but the general trend line in commodities has not been a, a positive thing. And you can go back and look at the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index for decades and see that you wouldn't have done very well. And so I don't, even though you could say they're a portfolio diversifier, you want to diversify into things that have a long-term history of, of appreciating in value. Um, however, you should in, certainly own natural resource companies, like, for instance, BHP Billiton, okay. the big uh, natural resource giant based in Australia, is something that I'm currently recommending. Um, you, there are certainly oil and gas companies that are attractive and other commodity plays. And if you have a diversified equity fund or if you own even an S&P 500 index, you do have exposure to oil and gas and copper and nickel and aluminum and and so on. So um, from that standpoint, you should definitely own natural resource stocks. And what percentage of your portfolio should make up? Maybe uh, somewhere between 5 and 10% of your total equity portfolio should be a natural resource type plays in my view. Okay. Good. Now, how about the uh, euro, which, uh, you know, of course, we're, we're hearing a lot about that Europe is going to eventually dissolve and fall apart, and there are some reasons for uh, that possibility, or the U.S. dollar, which uh, is supposed to be replaced ultimately as the reserve currency or the primary reserve currency. What are your thoughts on those currencies? I, I don't <laughs> think there's any realistic prospect of the dollar being replaced as reserve currency. When people bring this up, 
I always say, and what will replace it? Will it be the Japanese yen? I mean, if you don't like the U.S. deficit, the, the Japan's deficit as a percentage of GDP is twice as large as ours. Uh, is it going to be the euro? I mean, the euro is still a political experiment. You've got all these countries with different uh, different strengths, different labor forces, different political uh, uh, attitudes, all sharing the same currency. That's still, in my view, um, an open question as to whether it's going to succeed. But, but, but really, with the stagnant growth in Europe, is that going to replace the dollar? I don't think so. People often say, well, how about the Swiss franc? But uh, uh, Switzerland has about the same size economy as Connecticut. So uh, right. it's, it's hard to imagine the, everyone in the world flocking into Switzerland. So, so I, of course, it's not going to be uh, China. Why would you want a communist government to be your, your reserve currency? So I think uh, when you look at the United States, the most politically stable the world's largest economy, the world's biggest military. The, you know, it's there's there's more safety and security in um, the U.S. dollar currency than uh, than there is in, in any other alternative. So I, I see the the um, the dollar maintaining its position as the world's reserve currency, and I'm not terribly optimistic about the euro because there's there's so much tension between the weaker states like Greece and Italy and Portugal and Spain and Ireland and the industrial powerhouses, uh, which is Germany and, and uh, the Netherlands and, and France and the other stronger countries. And they, and they don't like the idea that they may have to, to uh, bail out at some point their, their spendthrift uh, neighbors. So it's, um, I, I'm somewhat pessimistic about the euro and, uh, and, and bullish on the dollar given the situation around the world today. Good. Okay. And I'm going to throw one more at you, which is emerging markets, and I'll even throw in specifically Africa, which happened to be our topic on the last show. Uh, what do you think about emerging markets? I, I like emerging markets for two reasons. The, the first thing is you have to remember that over um, three-quarters of the world's landmass and almost 85% of the world's population is in these emerging markets. I mean, mm-hmm. just uh, – China and India alone is more than two billion people, and then when you add in the population of Brazil and Russia and and Southeast Asia and Eastern Europe and Latin America, I mean it's just a, a huge market. And when you think about it, uh, all the things that we take for granted in the West, these right. people are, are only just beginning to acquire for themselves. In other words, they want to own a home, they want to have a car, they want to have a computer and a cell phone and health insurance and credit cards and all, all the material things that we have, they want. And again, this is 85% of the world's population, so there will be enormous money made, both by Western companies selling into these countries, but also emerging market companies meeting these needs. And I think it's a mistake for American investors to think that Western companies can go into these Latin and Asian and Eastern European countries and pick all the low-hanging fruit. It's not going to happen. The, the governments of these countries are going to make sure that the local population, the local businesses profit from these developments. And so uh, that's one reason I think everyone should have some investment in these emerging markets. The other reason is, despite the fact that they have these huge growth prospects, I mean, People are talking about China's growth slowing to seven, seven and a half percent from ten percent. Well, that's a slowing. But imagine if the U.S. economy is growing at seven and a half percent. People are throwing their hats in the air. Right. Um, right. So their growth is much stronger than ours, and yet their valuations in their stock market are much lower. 
the average U.S. company sells at 16 and a half times earnings right now, which is about the, the, the norm for the last 100 years or so. But in these emerging markets, the growth is stronger and the valuations are cheaper. Most companies are selling for about 12 times earnings. So, so the fact that they have stronger growth and, and more compelling valuations, I think, makes the emerging markets one of the outstanding buys uh, in the world financial markets right now. Okay, and I guess I should remind people that 250 years ago, the U.S. was an emerging market, and it's done pretty Indeed. well. Let's exactly. remind our listeners how they contact you, by the way. Would you give us those websites again? Yes, OxfordClub.com and InvestmentU, mm-hmm. that's the letter U, InvestmentU.com. Okay, and we've covered a lot of topics, Alexander, a, a variety of ranges of investing. We touched a little bit on the book, which I'm obviously going to encourage people to read to, to, to kind of build the enthusiasm that you've given us through this show. What are some of the key points you'd either like to emphasize or maybe add to what we didn't cover? Well, I tell you, for, for those people who are relatively new to investing, I would tell mm-hmm. them to remember that there are only a very few factors that will determine what the future value of your portfolio is. And those things are primarily the amount of money you save, the length of time you let it compound, what your asset allocation is, which is how you divide your money up among mm-hmm. stocks, bonds, uh, real estate investment trusts, and so on, uh, what you pay in expenses, and what you pay in taxes. So the, the, the real key to getting, to getting rich over the long haul is investing is, uh, as much as you can, letting it compound as long as you can, mm-hmm. dividing your money up sensibly among different asset classes, minimizing your expenses, and tax managing your portfolio to make sure that uh, you're not paying any more than you absolutely have to in, in taxes to the IRS each year. A, a, a wonderful fundamental is one of the things we try to do on this show is indeed cover, cover fundamentals, not necessarily current events. And that is a great, great, uh, well set. Well set. Uh, I totally agree with those factors and, and probably the, the toughest, and we spend so much time on the asset allocation piece and forget about some of the others, uh, like not spending your money on uh, flat screen TVs, which just make you spend more money on things that are advertised. So uh, that's my personal sure. pitch against television, I guess. Uh, certainly enjoyed having you uh, meet with uh, me and our listeners uh, share and, and maybe even infecting us with some optimism and enthusiasm. Uh, and I'm hoping you'll agree to come back and join us again. I'd be happy to come back, Ron. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, really, really enjoyed it. I am feeling much better now than I did when, uh, <laughs> when I last heard a news program, that's for sure. Appreciate it, Alexander. Thank well, good. You My time. work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Appreciate that. Thank you, sir. All righty. Now, I certainly got the impression that Alexander Green is not just optimistic. He's actually enthusiastic about the world we live in. He's helped helped me recharge my batteries and rebuild my optimism. I hope he did the same for you. Now, as I mentioned during the introduction, when I focus on that attitude of gratitude and realize what I already have, it helps a great deal. In that mindset, I realize that the resources I have available uh, are numerous. I've accomplished a lot despite obstacles in the past and in prior years. And having that positive mental attitude, that optimism toward overcoming those obstacles and looking forward to the opportunities hidden behind each of those problems, you, you know, seems to work out every every time. It works out well. I mean, why would I think if it's worked for five, ten, or a hundred times before, why should I worry that this time will be different? And, and I'm only one of seven billion people on this earth. Even if only 10% of us, or well, let's even say 5%, or maybe even only 1% of us 
have that same positive mental attitude and work to find the opportunities behind each problem, the world will certainly continue to improve despite the obstacles. Now, since Alexander was doing a great job at uh, keeping me optimistic despite my uh, attempts at trying to dampen that, I'll even throw in a factor we've mentioned on this show before. Banks are sitting on $2.7 trillion of money that they could be lending. So uh, with all of that quantitative easing, it is still uh, stockpiling in the vaults which means that there is still opportunity. It's not a problem that's being tucked away. They're obviously uh, not wanting to, to lend at these low interest rates, and I wouldn't either. But as interest rates rise, as they see the economy ticking up more, I think some of that $2.7 trillion trickles out. And that is another $20 billion of opportunity out there because of the leverage in banks. Now, I certainly encourage you to take a look at Investment U as, as uh, well as his four bestsellers. And let me just mention Gone Fishing Portfolio, love that name, Beyond Wealth, The Roadmap to a Rich Life, The Secret of Shelter Island, Money and What Matters, and of course, An Embarrassment of Riches. But Investment U is a great site, as I mentioned, has some uh, recent articles. He must put an article up there uh, at least once a week, if not more often. Uh, great topics like the ones we talked about today. And uh, he obviously gives you the depth, not just that uh, Twitter 140 characters. His uh, newsletters you'll want to check out as well. As I mentioned, the Oxford Communique, uh, 13 years of top ranking. The other ones, the Momentum Alert, the Insider Alert, True Value Alert, taking advantage of some of the things we talked about, looking at those opportunities out there and seizing them. Now, after today's show, you probably can see the benefit of learning from somebody like Alexander Green his experience, and his insights. Regular listeners of the Wealth DNA Radio Show know that our goal is here to help one million people become millionaires. But to be part of that group of millionaires, you need to be informed and active investor. But to be an investor, you need to be optimistic. I certainly hope today's show helped increase your optimism as it did mine. Remember, one of the best ways to increase your wealth is to tune into this show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas, and help you see the opportunities behind all those problems in the world. Many thanks to BI Solutions Corp. for sponsoring today's show. They're a real estate fund, a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix Scottsdale area. And they've created a niche helping families own, even if they can't get a bank loan, and helping their investors earn a higher return while helping those families become homeowners. The next Wealth DNA Radio Show will be the second Monday of September, Monday, September 8th. That's early in the month, 9 a.m. Arizona time. It is the second Monday. It just happens to start on the 1st. So on the 8th is the second Monday. We'll see you then, same place, same time. Our guest on that show will be Thomas Galvani, an attorney in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area. We'll be discussing protecting your intellectual property. You see, one month ago we talked about asset protection, and on our next show we'll focus on those intangible assets that may just be worth more or even, uh, or at least as much as your physical assets. Now, if that sounds like an exaggeration, just ask Bill Gates or any other software billionaire. As usual, we provide the lineup of guests and topics on WealthDNA.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows, including today's show, which you might want to re-listen to when you're feeling less optimistic. If you have some comments, questions, additional uh, uh, topics you'd like us to cover, or if you haven't received my emails reminding you about this show, send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Happy investing. And even when there's a lot of bad news out there.
You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.